0: just go to cars.com It's magical.
1: You are looking live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Real Forno Show. After a one-week hiatus, we kick off the beginning of a new series here where we're going to look at underappreciated moments, seasons, and games from Vikings history. And first up, I have Score North's Judd Zolgad joining me. We're going to talk about arguably the best comeback in the history of the Minnesota Vikings – the 1997 wildcard game against the Giants. Buckle up, there is a lot to get into here, and how this game was truly the catalyst of 1998.
2: Welcome to The Real Forno Show. Tyler Fornes, contributor at NBC Sports Edge, USA Today's Vikings Wire, Sports Illustrated's All Seahawks, along with being a member at Climbing the Pockets.
1: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the three best-looking gentlemen in Minnesota sports media. I am your host, Tyler Fornes. With me, as always, is producer Dave in the bottom right corner. And then we have sports dad himself, Mr. Judd Zulgad. How are you, sir? I'm fantastic. I am great. You? Life is good. Life is good. I've got my beer ready to go. We are going to have a really good conversation here. And I know the three of us have watched this game and... I picked this one out because I this is one of my first truly vivid Vikings memories as a young kid, and watching this team uh, for as long as I have, this one's always stood out because it, outside of like the Minneapolis miracle happening, this is something that we never really saw. I know you guys remember the miracle at the Met, at like that was that was before my time, and that was an astounding game in itself. But this one was a playoff game. Dennis Green comes into this game zero four in the playoffs and he kind of needs to win in order to save his job. Um, Kind of going back in time here, gentlemen, how big of a story was Dennis green truly being on the hot seat going into this game?
0: It was a tremendous one because so green gets the job um, coming from Stanford in 92, the Vikings make the playoffs, which is everyone's absolutely shocked. Oh my God. They've made the playoffs. They lose to Mm -hmm. Washington at at the Dome. In four of Green's first five years, they make the playoffs. They lose every one of, of those games. They missed in 95. They made it back in 96. And so now we are to 97, which got off to a great start. Had some disappointment. But Tyler and Dave, the story was this. The big story was... In the process of this season, Dennis Green has a book published in which at the, I believe the final chapter is about his succession plan to take over the team from, I believe it was the group of 10 who owned the team. And he basically, for lack of a better term at the time, threatened them. He's like, I am going to take control of the team. He's the coach of the team. Okay. So, there are, at that point in time, clearly, a few of the 10 who say, this might be a good opportunity to fire him. And so, he makes the playoffs, but make no mistake, the self-inflicted thing here was was not just a disappointment of, okay, if he drops this game, right, he's, he's in trouble because we're tired of, by that point, making the playoffs and losing. Oh, no, no. This is he basically has threatened an ownership group that was already somewhat, if not entirely, fractured. And so that's where you basically ran into, if Dennis Green does not beat the Giants in that game, he's going to be fired for insubordination. So the pressure was immense, but the pressure was immense because he had basically outlined in a chapter his plan to take control of the entire franchise. Think about that for a second
1: yeah
0: that's like zimmer telling the wilfs okay here's the deal guys i'm tired of you i'm going to attempt to take control like this this was so off the charts this was so outside the boundary of anything that that i think you could see now so that was the story was he basically what we had was a franchise coup attempt And that's where the pressure went from being high to absolutely positively immense. Dave,
1: how much how much do you remember of that? Like, I'll be honest, the seven year old kid, I I I was reading the funnies and I was reading uh, basically Sid Hartman's column. And that was about it because I just my I had a 12th (laughs) grade reading level, but my my brain was not wired for that quite yet. So this is all new and fascinating to me. Dave, what do you recall from that scenario?
2: Oh, I, it was very much that way. He was in trouble for that. He was in trouble for some of the other things. Um, right. right. There was rumors of different things that were going on, and it was all sorts of everywhere. I was stationed at Grand Forks at the time, and it was it was wild. Well, I mean, the Vikings were entertaining. You couldn't deny that, but it was over the top. No, we, nobody had ever seen a coach try or threaten to say, Hey, I want to take control of the team. That was, that was new. I mean, even with Don Shula getting, you know, team ownership stakes down in Miami right. and stuff, that right. was not what happened here. What happened here was the whole plan is how he was going to take the team. And, uh, it was, it was contentious among the owner's group, which was, that's its own problem. And he had all sorts of pressure going into this game. And then as the game went on, you know, the it didn't look like the Vikings were going to win. And the pressure just built. And you could see it on the sidelines. And it just, and it, it all culminated into this game. And there was things out of this game we see that set up the great run the next year in 98.
1: Yeah, and let's let's kind of lay the table for this game, because I think this game in itself has a lot of interesting points. And one of them that I uh, really stood out to me was the fact that Dennis Green was 0-4 in the playoffs, but he had never had Robert Smith in a playoff game. So going into this game just in itself, he has his star running back. Obviously, Robert Smith drafted in 1993 with that uh, first first round pick that they had gotten since the Herschel Walker trade. And he was a star. Uh, he was the main catalyst of this Vikings offense because you had Carter really at the very end of his prime. Jake Reed was a really good player, but the quarterback position was Brad Johnson and, and an H. Randall Cunningham. So the offense really ran through Robert Smith, and having him was a really big deal. Um, and I, I think it's really interesting how this game ended up kind of playing out because while Robert Smith was viewed as this catalyst in this workhorse back, he had really no modicum of success until his final run in the football game. And the only success they really had was with Leroy Horde. So I guess mm-hmm. my biggest question is like, Robert Smith just kept trying to bounce stuff outside all game. And he really didn't seem to want to actually go um, in between the tackles. Like, was it wasn't a, like, why was he keep keeping to try to bounce stuff outside? Because I remember him as being a really good runner between the tackles with enough speed to break out on the outside or on the tackle. So my guess is this. If you go back and watch that game,
0: what you see is is um, at Giant Stadium that, that day. It's a miserable day. And from the kickoff to start the, the game where Mitch Berger slips and Squibb kicks it by accident, I think part of the problem was, quite simply, footing. Uh, the footing looks awful. I mean, guys are slipping and sliding, and I don't know. I, I mean, that's... That's a long time ago, but it's still 97. So I don't know if, if they didn't have a coils on the turf or what. It certainly looks like the turf that day was an ice rink. So I think part of the problem was if you watch that game, a lot of guys were slipping. And I wonder if Smith was trying to bounce outside because of, of that. Just a theory. The other thing that I had forgotten, and he is a really good player, but I had forgotten how straight up he ran. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't get, he doesn't get down at all. Like he is straight up. Um, and I got to think in, on a day when it was hard to actually have your uh, cleats at the time, grab that turf that that didn't help him. Um, but I'm just guessing here because there was, you're you're right. On like every run, time after time after time, he's trying to bounce outside um, and you could see there's times where he starts to get going and slips as well. So I really think for both teams, part of the problem that that day, as far as holding on to football and footing goes was just the fact that it was wet, miserable, cold, and it looked like slick. Mm-hmm. And they
2: had yeah. snow, a little bit of snow later, but there was yep. one other thing. I don't know if you caught it. I did because it relates to today's Vikings. Um, Chris Christie was our center at the time. He was out. Jeff I think Christie. it was yep. uh, uh Lindsey was in. Yes, Everett Lindsey. And, and the defensive tackle, the nose, um I'm trying to remember his name. Keith Hamilton. Just Hamilton
1: would, was eating his lunch.
2: All eating day. and pushing him back into the into the backfield and uh Smith grabbed the ball and suddenly he's got Lindsey in his in his lap. Right, and he's like, "Oh, I got to move down, and I couldn't move." You know, normally where he'd have the space to cut, even on a good field, it was hard to do it then, yeah. and and that co- that caused problems all day long with the center not being able to hold the middle of the field.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. I think that there were at least, if I'm correct, I think there were at least three exchanges between. Um Everett and Cunningham in, in which they weren't clean. I think Cunningham flat out fumbled one or two. Two. He tried he tried to hand off to Smith at one point, and I think the fullback, uh, I think yep. the ball hit the fullback and came loose. So that game was was incredibly sloppy. And if you go back and watch that, there are opportunities where both teams definitely um screwed up and cost them themselves. The Giants could have had that game won by halftime. If the Giants mm-hmm. could have converted touchdowns instead of a field goal after field goal, that game's basically done by half. So like it, it probably evened out in the long run for both teams. Uh, but that looks like some old school, cold, miserable football that we still see, but I feel like the fields now are far superior as, as you know, as far as, as being heated, and in better condition to actually play football.
1: Absolutely. And let's kind of use that to set the scene here so we can kind of get everybody on par with what we're looking at. Uh, The Giants were 10-5-1 in the Champions of the NFC East, uh, and they were 7-2-1 with Danny Cannell as a starter. Most people remember Danny Cannell uh, as kind of a loudmouth on Twitter, and he works for CBS Sports uh, as an analyst. Uh, but he was a star coming out of Florida State in the early 90s and ended up taking over midseason for Jim Fossil's Giants, who was in his first year as the head coach. We have a rookie, Tiki Barber, in this game, who ended up being their leading rusher. Um, the Vikings themselves had a very interesting season, starting out 2-2, two and two, went on a six-game winning streak to get to 8-2, and two, and then a five-game losing streak, leaving Week 17, needing a win against the Indianapolis Colts to make the playoffs, which they ended up getting. Uh, Brad Johnson got hurt in the week uh, 14 game against the Packers, and he was replaced by Randall Cunningham. Uh, John Randall was a first team all pro at defensive end, not his normal defensive tackle, and won the sack title with 15 and a half sacks. We have a 39 degree temperature kickoff with 10 plus mile an hour wing gust on that slick astroturf where precipitation was continuing to come down. Gentlemen, we talked about the opening kickoff being Mitch Berger slipping. Brad Deluiso, at the end of the first half, did the exact same thing. So we had footing issues consistently, and that'll play into a a double move by David Patton later in the first quarter. But I think the biggest takeaway for me here at the beginning of this game was not the offense. It was the Vikings' defense. And, Judd, you alluded to it. The Giants really could have put this game away early. The, The Vikings turned the ball over three times throughout the course of the game. All of them in the first half the giants only mustered 9 points 3 field yep. goals and when they went into halftime with only a 19 to 3 lead it felt like that game should have been 30 to 3 and it the the nails should have been in the coffin at that point what about the vikings defense like throughout the entirety of the season like defense until mike zimmer uh for throughout the majority of my life was mostly an afterthought it wasn't great you had some decent seasons where like 2009 you had the Williams wall Jared Allen Anton Winfield senior but it was never a focus and it was never something that you could really be proud of but this defense stood up and they played a fantastic game of football considering the situations that they were put in
0: absolutely and I think you know it's probably in fairness a combination of things too um, because they certainly did have some good players but I think it goes back to to this both teams offensively because of the conditions. We're also guilty of consistently, um, for lack of a better term, shooting themselves in the foot, right? So, but yeah, like when when you look back now, um, the Vikings definitely had a few great defensive players. You know, Randall was fantastic. Like, there's no doubt about that. And the man was going 24-7. Um, but I really think that in this game from both sides, the offensive problems were, were more self-inflicted, actually, because of the fact that teams really struggled with, with what, drop balls? Like, we saw some bad on both sides, including mm-hmm. uh, Carter as well, who, you know, had great hands. But we saw some bad drop balls. We, we saw some balls go through guys' hands. We saw fumbles. We saw... Um, backs lose their footing at times. The thing that I had forgotten, though, that I think is the most fun is this. The use back then of the fullback as a ball-carrying option consistently. Charles Way, who, who is 49 now, Charles Way carried the ball all the time in that game. And it's like, mm-hmm. now you saw a fullback, you'd be like, what the heck is go- going on, right? And so I did fi- find it to be... Funny that what now twenty plus years back that the fullback was not just at that point in time a blocking option, but the fullback was like a viable option to forge straight a- ahead right through the a gap there and just try and get
1: yards too. No, hundred percent. And I remember playing the original NFL Blitz. Charles Way was my least favorite player in the history <laughs> of that game because no matter what, it it just seemed like he was going to absolutely annihilate you on the defensive side of the football and break every tackle. And he would just be able to literally have his way with you. Uh, and <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting at the beginning of the game when the Giants first got possession, they noted that Charles Way was the most consistent offensive player for that team because you had a, an aging Chris Calloway, you had a rook, uh, young player in Amani Toomer, rookie David Patton, rookie Tiki Barber. And Howard Cross himself wasn't exactly what you would call a dynamic tight end as a receiver. So Charles Way being the best player really on that offense is, it kind of fits with the time.
0: Oh, absolutely, right? Like those guys, but I just love how they would get the the ball and just like, I don't know what, what the term is, but like, shuffle like they they didn't really run they just sort of like mm-hmm. bowling ball guys down bo- or bowling <laughs> pin guys down and and i just i love that and and i also love the size of things back then like the shoulder pads those shoulder mm-hmm. pads were like compared to now right they were enormous yeah. and it, it's just it, it's like you you think of that that stuff from like 1975 or something like that but you forget that as as recently as we approached the year 2000, like a lot of this stuff was still so now would, would be considered just completely archaic. And at the time was, hey, it's football. It's the norm.
2: Well, another thing about what was different than, than now is I sat there and watched the, the, the game all over again. And I'm going, wow, there would be 45 different flags thrown during this game because they were just abusing each other. There was no, you know, on sacks, it was thrown to the ground and driving in, you know, and hitting guys out of bounds, just trying to take their heads off throughout the entire game.
0: And it was like, oh, (laughs) I miss those days. Yeah. Well, and and you're right, too, Dave, because the best part is the QBs aren't really protected. Right, Like they Cunningham's taken off and at the end of a run, they'll just crush him. Like now there'd be 18 flags, right? It'd be like uh roughing the passer, blah, blah, blah. Back then it's like, Hey dude, you took off. Mm. Now you're going to pay the price.
1: And that was kind of the epitome of the time. Uh, most quarterbacks didn't play a full season. You were expecting your backup right. to have to come in and win you a couple of football games. And that kind of ended in the mid two thousands uh, when you had Carson Palmer and Tom Brady, that get torn ACLs from those low hits. And that's really when things started to kind of extrapolate. Mm-hmm. Cause you'd have Steve young missing a couple games a year for concussions. Uh, Warren moon notoriously missed games all the time. Cause the run and shoot just beat him to death. And that Brad Johnson ended up getting kind of beat up. Um, and then the next year he broke his ankle in week two. And all of a sudden Randall Cunningham comes in has a fringe MVP type season with that three deep roster. And then you have the Genesis in 1998. Uh, And I think that's a very important conversation for the context of this game, because uh, as we continue to talk about the game itself, which has a lot of fascinating points, Dennis Green, as we mentioned earlier, needed to win it to save his job. And without Dennis Green winning this game, he's not the coach. And that also means that the Vikings likely don't take Randy Moss at that 21st pick, because we all know that Warren Sapp, 1995, that was a big cloud over Dennis green's head that he carried for a long time. And that uh, was ultimately what pushed him over the edge. And then you had a player like Chris Carter who battled his massive demons early in his career, got him kicked out of Philly and he cleaned his act up and came to Minnesota to be a- acting as that mentor for Moss himself.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, this t- to me now years a- after the game is the most intriguing part of this entire thing B- because, because, To go back to the Colts game that you mentioned, Tyler, at the Metrodome, which I think was the last game or the penultimate game of the season that year before the playoffs started. That Mm -hmm. game will forever now, because rules have changed, that game is the last game that will forever be blacked out home game. The interest in this team was so low. And that's the thing about where, where Green was in trouble. When Green... Just to be clear here, in 92, okay, Green gets the job. Comes in New Sheriff in Town. And as Dave will re- recall, we loved that. We loved Green. He was a hit. Like he had his own he had mm-hmm. his own show, he played drums. He yeah. was this, you know, breath of fresh air. There's a new sheriff in town if you don't like what I'm doing too bad, get out of here. And Vikings fans were like, "Yeah, this is great." Um a couple of years a- after that, the um, Star Tribune, I think it was, broke the story of some uh, some sordid tales from Green's time at Stanford. And that's when Green went in the bunker to release a statement denying it, I believe. But like that changed things because now the fans were like, oh, hold on a second here. What's going on with Green? And uh, by the time that we got to the playoff berth in 97, I think fans were just sort of like apathetic. And the other thing to keep in mind, and this is a very important thing, the fan base that the game that you, that we watched for this, the fan base is in no way, shape, or form the type of fan base we know now. Randy Moss changed the fan base entirely. I would argue. I would ar- argue that the majority of fans that watched that game, uh, the playoff game against the Giants, were were aging. Holdover, Met Stadium, Vikings fans, and some new fans, but not an excited group. They were apathetic. They were like, "Ah, you know, we like the Vikings," but and so that game in itself, and that that year, because when we're talking about a blackout, we're talking about the Vikings could not sell out the Metrodome, and they couldn't even come close enough to, to have back in the day Pillsbury buy tickets left. Okay, so like this is a big deal you have a blackout in the national football league that's a story um but that w- was the apathy that i think at that time was going through the fan base and again i've never been a big moss fan like he did things here he, great player but i mean he was uh he could be a a chore he could be a pain like there were a lot of things but what the one thing you cannot take away from moss is what he did for the fan base and 98 reinvented reinvigorated and completely changed this franchise and is far more what we know now so if green gets fired one is they don't take moss no way they don't take moss they don't draft 21 they draft higher than that um and the story of the vikings i'm not saying that the vikings wouldn't be here because i don't believe that I think that the Vikings would be in this town, but you guys, the story of the Vikings, if they lose that game and green gets fired is massively different in my opinion than what the story good or bad too has become. It's so intriguing to me. All right. And you could take that.
2: If he gets fired, we don't have Moss. We don't have the generation of new fans after that. When the Wilfs eventually bought the team and they're wanting a new stadium. We move on from Red McCombs, his, you know, cheap self, and the Wolves buy the stadium. The threat had already been out, we'll relocate to L.A., right? That was McCombs' deal. Well, and that threat resided. Well, the fan base was now charged up because we had just come off of Randy Moss, 98, 2001, you know, and things were fired up. And that fan base that grew from there was the ones that lobbied to get state money so that U.S. Bank could be built. Because without that, we don't know if there would ever have been a replacement for the Metro dump after, you know, it, it would have taken something similar to chin up the fans because literally they were They were blackout games,
0: local yeah. games that were blacked out. You couldn't watch them, yeah. Tyler. You couldn't watch home games.
1: Oh, I, I remember that because I remember where I was when I heard the Brad Johnson self touchdown pass in '97. Uh, I I was at uh, ironic, I, like weirdly, I was at the Hamill Fire Department, and uh, <laughs> my 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 dad worked in Hamill, so he had a lot of connections, and we and there, they had some kind of gimmick there. So I'm listening to the game, and I'm just pissed as a seven year old kid. I can't watch the Vikings and. Lo and behold, Brad Johnson throws the first ever self-touchdown pass. So, like those, and I remember the days in the early two thousands where General Mills, Pillsbury, Honeywell would scrounge up the money to buy the rest of the seats. So yep. kids like me who never got to go to games uh, growing up would be able to watch them on TV, and it was a it was a stressful thing checking the paper every morning to see, see it. If right? that they were yep uh, two thousand tickets uh, a <laughs> Yep. Uh, and you know what? Uh, God bless Sid for putting that out there. So, like, one, I can keep track of it as a kid. But two, enough people would read Sid Hartman's column and then buy the tickets. So I got to watch the games.
0: Awesome. So uh, there is one play in particular, two guys, in this game, second quarter, that I think is the is the synopsis of how much things changed from from that game and year to 98. Second quarter, um, it's 13-0 Giants. And Cunningham throws deep for Carter, who was very good, but didn't have the ups, right? Mm -hmm. Seahorn, Jason Seahorn picks off the pass. Go back and watch that. And you tell me that a year after that play, Moss doesn't catch that same ball time and time again. And that, to me, is the biggest thing about, like, what, what did Moss do? Randy Moss gave you an element and and a threat that you didn't even, like Carter was good, Jake was good, Reed was really good, but neither one of them could catch that ball. And and it's a Cunningham special too, because the thing that I found so intriguing is, you know, Moon and Favre threw just bullets, right? Like those balls were on, bang. Um, Cunningham would loft the ball up. They almost look like pseudo punts at times, but they weren't bad passes. But you had to go get them, and, and I really think that that's the one thing that changed so much by '98 was Cunningham found a guy in Moss that could go get those passes. He could stop, and most importantly, he could outleap almost any cornerback. And that and that pass to Carter is an is an illustration of the issue pre-Moss and what made Moss so special.
1: Absolutely. And when you watch that play, it there was an element to Carter where he wasn't always the best tracker of the football because if he would have had a better ability to track the football, he wouldn't have overran it and he, he wouldn't have even needed to jump. He was in a position where he had overran it so much in Seahorn uh, in trail technique, who's right behind him. Se- Seahorn had an easy pick. That That's about as easy as you're going to get. From the cornerback position, they ended up taking it across the 50 and got a field goal off of it. But um, I think Jake Reed, with his ability to track the football, probably catches that pass. And obviously uh, Moss just dominates at the catch point, uh, and he would have been able to bring that in easily. And it, it feels like just because that pass was thrown to Carter was the main reason why that ended up being an arm punt rather than a potential big play, because I think your other receivers probably bring that in.
0: Yeah, Chris didn't have I Chris's skill set was was special and he was very very good. But yeah, he didn't have that that same skill set that Moss did. And yeah, Reed might make that play. I'm just saying that Moss so thoroughly changed. I mean, Moss literally took Cunningham from being, you know, a guy who would come back and was playing okay. Uh, to, to uh, you know, what, a damn near an, an MVP because he could basically go get any ball and adjust too. So mm-hmm. to, to your point, you're exactly right, Tyler. The ability of Randy Moss to adjust in mid-stride, in mid-flight, is one of the most remarkable things. And it's why I've always said I really think that if you're going through the players in this sport who changed how the game was thought, thought about, like what changed. I think Moss is a top five. Like I think that he, what he brought to the table and what he could do made teams and players and young guys rethink the possibility of things.
1: I agree. And they were really the first team outside of your run and shoots and the K-Gun with the Buffalo Bills to truly feature three wide receiver sets and try and push the ball vertically, and they had an incredible amount of success in an offense that wasn't a gimmick. Like, the K-Gun wasn't sustainable for most teams. Uh, Jim Kelly was a special type of player to be able to run that system. And then you had the run and shoot, which itself, arguably, my favorite offense of all time. I have two Warren Moon jerseys hanging behind me. My favorite player in the history of football. But the offense itself was gimmicky, and it... You had to be a certain type of player to run it. What Randall Cunningham ran for the Vikings was a very pro-style offense, and they just pushed the ball with a lot of deep concepts because you had three dynamite receivers, and it changed the facet of what the NFL was going to become as far as how to throw the football. And like the Packers, uh, historically, like they used their top three picks on big defensive backs – Antoine Edwards, Mike McKenzie, Fred Vincent, all to stop Randy Moss. They were never able to stop Randy Moss, even though they used that many resources on the secondary to do so. And yep. it, it changed the game completely because it re, it helped teams realize that you could do these explosive things running a more traditional style offense.
0: Yep. Yep. And R- Ron Wolf said that. He, he said that he took those three back-to-back to back Because the 98 game in Green Bay was such a debacle. And, and that's the, mm-hmm. that game to me, the Dallas Moss game uh, was fantastic. But the game to me in Green Bay was the most impressive just based on this. This is
2: Advertiser Content, brought to you by Frito-Lay.
1: Hello, I'm Chip Murphy, here to get you ready for the big tournament. Tonight we'll break down... Just go to frito No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends 4 3 Void wherever prohibitive. Here's worth the snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at frito
0: You literally saw, in, in my opinion, that night, the league changing. Because yep. now you're seeing this, oh my God. I mean, he literally is dominating. It's like basketball. He's dominating the, these guys athletically. He's that good. And there is nothing that they can do. Like, you know, ordinarily in football, you make adjustments, right? You hit harder. I don't know. You do something. There was that night the Green Bay Packers were helpless. Um, and just to, to go back on Green, too, I think it, it's important that while he certainly had his faults, Dennis Green, I don't think, ever got the proper appreciation for the offensive mind that he truly was. Uh, because the Moss thing, yeah, like it's a no daw thing, right? Well, of course they use Randy Moss. He was great, but it took green to draft him and then plug him in. And, and think about now, if you had Chris Carter and Jake Reed on your team, right. And you draft Moss fans are like, what are you doing? You, three guys. What's going on with that? Um, green did that in 98 and he had the ability, the smarts to then say, Here's what we're going to do. Impressive there. Um, and so what he basically did, too, and and the last thing that he, he did, it might not have been the nicest thing, but it was incredibly smart. When Dennis Green uh, left Stanford to take the job here, he hired a guy from Washington who I believe had been their quarterback's coach, Jack Burns, to be his O.C., okay? Now, make no mistake, Green was the de facto O.C., But what he wanted to do and where I would argue was a genius was this because he fired Jack Burns fairly quickly. He wanted to get all he could informationally, Tyler, on the Joe Gibbs offense because he Mm. had the Bill because he had the Bill Walsh scheme. So he knew the Walsh scheme, but the man was very smart. And what Dennis Green said was, I know the Walsh scheme, but but the, the Joe Gibbs stuff works, too. But I think he was smart enough to know, I don't know how it works. So he actually went and briefly got the quarterback's coach, hired him. It didn't work, fired him, and I think at that point promoted Billick to OC. But the point is, there's a lot of stuff now in retrospect about Green that we we forget. And in my opinion, he is ne- he is after Grant, the second best coach here. I think Zimmer is third. But I think that Dennis Green, uh, because it didn't end great in lots of ways, probably, I think he has sold short for what he brought, especially keeping in mind the time. Oh, yeah. so. Well, and
2: I was going to bring that up because he even admitted in a, on a show or in an interview or whatever, why do you run, and the Gibbs offense was an Eric Coriel style, long vertical. Why do you run that when the rest of the division is running West Coast? He says, because I want to be different. I don't want them preparing what what they go against every day. I want them to have to think, right? So we're going to play it differently, and he did, and it ended up resulting in the most prolific offense in NFL history to date. Now, they were eventually passed by the Rams, but it's that whole philosophy is, well, everybody's doing this. I already know how to do this. I'm going to change it. I'm going to take Gibbs's model because Gibbs had won two Super Bowls. I'm going to go deep. Now I'm going to get the tools I need to go deep. Two- hey, Carter and Reed were both thousand-yard receivers. I think it was two or three years in a row, right? Yep. And suddenly I'm going to pick up Randy Moss, and then I'm going to make this thing. It's like putting a turbocharger you know, in your sports car. It was like, we're going to go. And, you know, the old joke after that was it was any green because there was no D, but he focused on offense. And his philosophy, like I've said before, is I don't care what you're doing over there. We are going to try to score every time we have the ball. And that's what that developed into. And I love that philosophy. Absolutely love it. I hope Mm O'Connell takes it, watches some old film and think of that.
1: I love the philosophy, too, and um, we're getting off track here a little bit, but I, I love this conversation because it all boils down to what this game encompasses. And it's really – this game, to me, is the legacy of Dennis Green because if he loses this game, Dennis Green is looked at really as an adjunct failure and the way that this team was able to battle back, and they really fought for it. And the broadcast kept talking about how this these players loved Dennis Green, and they fought for him and they really tried to win the game for him and they ended up doing so despite Dennis Green with some awful clock management in the game and and then he goes uh, post game tells Ozzy Visser, "Oh, we had great clock management." Like, no, yeah, just uh, absolutely abhorrent clock management. Skills, that would
0: come back to bite time. him in
1: in, in, it bit in the, him in the ass game. big time.
0: Yeah, it would come back to bite him.
1: Yeah, it would. And I think one interesting thing uh with Dennis Green being this beacon of open-mindedness and wanting to learn and wanting to be able to add other things to the offense um and the question i want to raise for you gentlemen is like dennis green was known like throughout throughout my childhood i knew him as a guy who could never pick a guy He, he he was always changing quarterbacks that to a fault and he he never really trusted anybody long enough to give them a true consistent run until arguably Dante Culpepper. And like Randall Cunningham had his short spurt at the end of uh, 97, and then he took over in 98. Started in 99, pulled after six games for Jeff George, who went on that run, and he wouldn't even keep Jeff George when right to Dante. You had Sean Salisbury, Rich Gannon, and then those guys didn't work out with Wade Wilson kind of sprinkled in there, and then War Moon takes over for two years when, let's be honest, Love Moon, but he just was not the same player, and two nine, and 9-7 seasons kind of bore that out. Where does Dennis Green, with all of his offensive genius and open-mindedness, like, why could he never pick a guy and at least ride him out? Because if he would have rode out Rich Gannon, maybe we get an MVP season from him before the year 2002 with the Oakland Raiders.
0: Gannon thinks very weird, um, and, and it's probably, if you go back and look now, his his biggest whiff right because i mean clearly the guy had talent now if if you recall though the history of gannon is interesting because he yes. was, he played at where De- delaware correct and he was drafted by the patriots who said hey we're happy to have you you're going to be a running back and rich is like no i'm a quarterback and they said no you're gonna be a running back and rich said well then trade me which they did um and it was that with Green here at the time? I want to say that was before Green. So if I'm not mistaken, Rich Gannon was inherited by Green. Uh, my experience often with coaches like that is they, they want to find their own guy. And that became where the struggle took place because Brad Johnson was drafted in 92, correct? But I believe he was taken in what, it, what was at the time the 12th round. Like he was a really late round pick. And it began the sort of struggle that I think that they thought they solved with Moon. But, Tyler, to your point, he was pretty beat up by that point. And he wasn't bad, but he certainly wasn't what I think they expected when they acquired him from Houston at the time. And then Cunningham was what? Installing pools in Vegas. um, Mm -hmm. I think it was a
1: forklift.
0: he was running a forklift he was running a forklift but i mean he was like installing stuff or and so he he missed a year um so yeah it's interesting that at the end he found dante and dante looked to be the part like it's weird that he couldn't find a guy that they pivoted from you know from moon and then and if you go back before that what it it was that run of Salisbury Jim McMahon they were they were bringing everybody through here and then when he got Culpepper that worked and then you know he, he was gone fairly quickly as far as the answer to the question of why couldn't he identify a quarterback before that it's a really good one and I don't know I don't know why um oh and keep in mind too if you recall, they came very close to getting Dan Marino to play here. I was about to and say that. And that yeah. was green as that well. That was Dan before Marino? Dante. Yeah. It was his so yeah. rent an old
2: quarterback mode, and that's what he seemed to go through. But was still what successful.
1: What year was that with Dan Marino?
0: 2000, right? Somewhere in there. It yeah. was the very end. It was the very end, and I want to say – Marino was trying to decide if he was going to retire, and the Dolphins had said, see ya, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And he talked to the Vikings. And also, don't forget, the Vikings came, and, and th- this all goes back to, to your point, Tyler, the Vikings came very close, very close, and this would have been a disaster to paying Scott Mitchell big. Mm-hmm. Scott, oh, no. Mitch- yes. Scott, Scott Mitchell, the story is this. Young man, let me tell you a little story. Scotty <laughs> Mitchell was at Winter Park, and they had him in. And, of course, he, he had had, what, a few games with the Dolphins where I believe Dan was hurt, and he looked good. And so he hits the market. He becomes the hot commodity. The Vikings fly him here. And I believe he told Billick, I'm going to sign here. I love it here. I'm going to be your quarterback. But I promised the Detroit Lions – that I will go there first. And the Vikings are like, really? I mean, you got to? And he's like, I promised him that, but I'm going to be your guy. And the Vikings, and he never came back. Thank God. The Vikings were that close to having Scotty Mitchell installed as their quarterback, which would have been... a Franchise has certainly made some mistakes, it would have been one of the biggest mistakes.
1: Hey, it would have been hard to blame him for really wanting to take that chance because he did have that felt like fantastic season in 93 taking over for an injured Dan Marino but yeah. it ended up being a flash in the pan like a lot of guys who have like that one year breakout in in like the 80s and 90s so we saw a ton of them Chris Chandler was technically a one year breakout with the with the Falcons in 98 yeah um you had Stan Humphreys when he could actually stay healthy the one year with the Chargers uh, mm-hmm. there were just a myriad of guys who ended up having that so the Vikings really did dodge a bullet there um and, I think this game was really fascinating on a number of levels. Cause I, I want to get back to this. Um, and I, I think I, I want to go back to the defense because the defense really kept the Vikings in this game. And the way that they were aggressive in attacking the ball carrier consistently throughout the game, cause they only got one sack on Canel. Canel did a really good job of getting the ball out quickly but they were attacking the running game. They were attacking receivers in the open field and that zone defense. And they were just able to collapse on the football really quickly. I thought it was really impressive. And one of the best defensive performances I remember from a Vikings team um, in my childhood, because I, I started watching Vikings football in 94, 95. And at that point, like you had like Chris Dolman was starting to cycle his way out and Keith Millard was gone. Jack Del Rio was your middle linebacker. Studwell was gone. And this is one of the best performances from a Vikings defense I can remember in that time.
0: Yeah, and so I I think so if if you go back to when you started to watch this team, Tyler, I think you had Hank Thomas inside. Is that correct? Randall inside? Yes. Millard, um, Millard got hurt. I think he tore up his knee against Tampa Bay at the Metrodome in like 90 and was pretty much done after that. But, you know, Hank was pretty darn good. Uh, mm-hmm. Johnny certainly was. Um, I would say that, and I, if I'm not mistaken statistically, I think um, I think Dungy, when he, he was D.C., before he got the Tampa Bay job, uh, had some fairly highly ranked defenses here. But yeah, it was never. I wouldn't say it, it was a top priority, but I don't recall it being a disaster. At least on a yearly basis, it it eventually got bad. Uh, but it feels like that that defense, Dave, certainly it certainly had some notably good players consistently. I think throughout that decade,
2: it did. Oh, it did. I I just put up Jerry Ball. We talk about John Randall, Jerry Ed Mc, Ed McDaniel. Um let's see who else? Who had Corey Fuller in the um who was eh? oh he was okay, right? Um one of my Robert favorite Duane Vikings in of all time. Robert Griffin was one of the better corners we had. It was our safety yeah. and uh Joe. One of my Browner favorite Vikings of Joey all time,
1: Tony Williams. Williams. I loved Tony Williams growing up. Like, why? I don't know. I just always loved Tony Williams. <laughs> you wouldn't Maybe, love him I now.
0: Think,
1: <laughs> I think I I think, <laughs> I'm, a, I, think I just yeah, I think I might have just had a thing for three techniques because I also love Kevin Williams and John Well, Randall. Kevin Williams.
0: Yeah, Kevin was yeah. special. Mm-hmm. I, um, Ball was my guy. They, they signed him. I think he'd been a free agent. I think he was let go by Cleveland, right? And he was one of those just – they're basically gone now, but I love them. Grady Jackson, Jerry Ball, mm-hmm. uh, was it Keith Washington, just those mammoth men. They couldn't really move but you couldn't run past them. Like you would run right into them. I love those guys. That that's a relic of a different time that I actually miss. Cause those guys were just enormous men and they could just stop you. And the interesting thing on green quickly too, is this the Vikings, if I'm not mistaken in the second round early in Dennis's time here, drafted Gilbert Brown and he came to Mankato Third third round pick. Okay. And he came to Mankato too fat. They got mad released him and he goes on to this marvelous career with the green Bay Packers. So I guess a lesson learned there about uh, being fat and uh, he knows tackle at the time. That was not exactly counterproductive.
2: And it wasn't And following Jerry ball. We had fat Pat built the same way. fire plug, eats up two blockers could
0: move though. Fat, Mm -hmm. fat Pat could Pat, Pat had, Pat had the legs of, of like a dancer. Like it was the damnedest thing. Cause he could really move. Jerry would just stand there and you'd run right into Jerry. You had no chance.
1: Yeah. It reminded me of like the, all the guys from that time, like you're Ted Washington's and like, just,
0: of Ted Washington,
1: Ted Washington, just this big blob down the middle and you right. were not getting past him. It was, it was a special time um, for big boys in the game of football. Um, Kind of the last thing we should talk about before we end up going here is how how incredulous and remarkable the Vikings were able to pull this game off considering uh, Dennis Green actively tried to lose this football game with his clock management <laughs> skill. Uh, with under four minutes to go, the Giants have the football, and Disman and Mike Patrick on the broadcast are just lambasting him for refusing to use his two timeouts to save some time. If they get the clock down to 216 and then Cunningham pulls some magic. Uh, we mentioned it earlier in the show, Keith Hamilton bull rushing Everett Lindsay does it again. Cunningham kind of evades it, rolls out to his right, throws across the body, Jake Reed for that touchdown. And, mm-hmm. it, uh, and then they were able to get that onside kick. And that was one of the first moments I remember as I'm sitting in my basement, eating a, an entire bag of potato chips and container of top the tater. Uh, that my mom got so pissed I was never allowed to eat out of the container again. Uh, I don't blame your mom. Oh, I don't either. I, I, I'm I, too mom in this one, Tyler. Oh, I don't blame her at all. I, I just – that was my lasting memory from the game. And the fact that they were able to recover that onside kick and then flip the field in just a few plays was uh, – it, it really felt like luck was on their side.
0: Oh, it definitely did. And And Chris Walsh who is the, the guy who eventually recovered the onside kick, was a fantastic special teams player. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, he was absolutely fantastic. And, and, I mean, it looks like luck, but it's not. I mean, he's in the right position. He comes up with the ball. There, there's a player, I think there was a, if I'm not mistaken, it might have been a defensive back from the Vikings on special teams who just missed it, and then Walsh got that ball. Um, but that was a really nicely... Executed play. All of that being said, you are exactly right. Uh, I feel like at that time, d- despite what um, what Mike Patrick and theisman talked about, we didn't necessarily debate clock management as much back then. Uh, we talked about it, but it feels like we like now. Now, if the Vikings had won that game and Green did what he did with that clock, I feel like it would still be talked about for a week. Um, cause yeah. that is a great, I, like I had forgotten it's, what are you doing there? Like, how are you allowing that? How are you not
1: calling a timeout?
0: Well, like, and, and they weren't
1: down one score. They were down two.
2: Right. I and know. taking their full time and, and Deisman was also yelling at Cunningham. Cunningham should know the game situation. He's saying he should know he should get up to the line quickly, snap the ball. Right. And that they should be throwing and not
0: necessarily running the ball because they had two scores to get. Yes, yeah, He was yes. going crazy. It's 22-13 with 426 left, okay, in the fourth quarter. It's third and four. Vikings have the ball, and they run it and get stopped, and they punt it back. And they punt it. Now, they got it back, but the point is, like, with I. I it does make no sense in retrospect that, that with what they did to essentially self-sabotage that they won this game. It makes no sense. Like, I didn't think about it as much at the time, but going back and watching, and, and Dave's right. They're lollygagging up to the line of scrimmage. Mm-hmm. They're taking their time. They Third and four, a run play. And Theismann's like, what are they doing? And Theismann, you know, he loved to praise teams. He didn't like to bash as much. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it is, if you put the timeouts and, and that third down and the Vikings punting it back uh, down 22-13, if you put all of that in a football comebacks too, about one out of a thousand times, is that going to result in an actual comeback to win that game?
1: Yeah, it was uh, honestly remarkable how, how poor the clock management was, but I also... F- don't necessarily completely blame him because the mindset of games at that time were like, there. you really were going for it on fourth down often. You were nope. punting it and you were trusting your defense, whether right or wrong. That the mentality was a very old school. And even in 1997, where you're going to run the football, you're going to play defense, and then you're going to utilize the passing game for what it was. But it wasn't the catalyst of most offenses. It was there. It existed. And even with the Vikings, they were trying to run with Robert Smith and Leroy Horde, who is arguably one of the oddest third-down backs in the history of football because the man was like 250 pounds of just rock-solid muscle. And no matter what the situation was, you you need one yard, i will get you three. You need five yards, i will get you three. And he was the third-down back for this team. So he still should be uh, criticized for the – The decision and how he utilized his timeouts, but it was also a product of the time. Yes, the
0: the one thing that's weird though is third and four late in the game, down by a lot at that point, football wise. Um, I give Green credit for this, but he didn't use the player. That would have been a perfect time for a West Coast screen, David Palmer, Mm -hmm. and Palmer and Palmer to his credit and to Green, uh, his credit too. David Palmer now can you imagine this guy like now this guy would be he is the he's the prototype right like he's what you want and 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 he could do he could return punts he could take a pass and get you 18 yards he could catch so like third and four to me this would have 100 percent been the guy to like just dump the ball off to and if you do that he's gonna get you eight yards minimum probably
2: but, um, yeah, I want to interrupt. Joseph just said, "No, Surly's back then." Judd, Ham, Schmidt, and Olympia.
0: Yes, yo I'm well
2: aware. Uh, back in those <laughs> days, it was crummy macro beers, um, and that's why we didn't have good beers back then. But we have good beer now, do we not?
0: What's your favorite good beer, there, Judd? Oh, Surly, Furious, all of them. Though I'm fi- I'm finding now. Here's my thing. Okay. so. I will always be true. My bell cow beers, furious for sure. But I'm going to tell you right now, there are so many summer options, and can you believe that too? Like we used to be confined to like four beers for summer. Yeah. What a pity. Now you've got your choice, and of course, yes, Surly is the home of my of my winning team as far as beer goes, gentlemen.
2: Well, as you know, we have our own winning I know. team. Let's see it. Lake Monster Brewing. There we go. Wearing a hat. They make some of the most fantastic beers in the city. Uh, They've got a big brew hall downtown in St. Paul. They compete with Surly, but I I, I view it as one big family of, of, of brewmeisters that love to brew great beer. They get together, believe it or not, the different breweries get together and they do uh, they'll go together on common batches and do certain things because it's fun. And and there's nothing like the great beers we can get today, unlike in 1997, when you were restricted to about a handful of beers. But while I got Lake Monster up there, on tap presently at Lake Monster, they have the one that I absolutely love and adore, the bourbon barrel aged black 10 point ABV. If you're into a bourbon aged flavored ale, this is it. I'm telling you right now, it will make your night. And you can see what's up there. They've got some of the good standbys, the rare species uh, 2.0 is absolutely fantastic, all the way down to their non alcoholic stuff. They have good food and uh, always a great time and great memories. And you're right, Joseph. Back then, we didn't have it, but we do today.
1: Yeah, it's like I can't even imagine you know, what you guys dealt with, with as far as the craft beer scene. Because didn't have yeah, Well, when I turned 21 in 2010, craft beer was Blue Moon. That was craft <laughs> beer. And now just in the past like 12 years, it's just absolutely skyrocketed. And I'm drinking a beer right now called Milk of the Murder Hornet. Which is an absolutely fantastic. It's a it's a blueberry milkshake IPA from Hubbard's Cave. It's an absolutely tremendous oh, wow. beer. Oh wow. wow! Really, really, really good.
0: Somebody's um, serious on this show, and it's not Dave and not me. <laughs> well, back in ninety
2: seven, I was brewing. I was home brewing with my pastor. We were doing our own batches. I was brewing with really?
0: my English in ninety seven. Yeah, recipes. Oh wow!
2: Yeah, because I left Grand Forks in two thousand one. And uh, wow, we were, we'd been brewing for a while, but it was homebrew. We'd do it six gallons at a time,
0: oh, yeah, yep, yeah. and in fact, I watched the game that we are presently discussing. I watched it at Joe Sensors in Bloomington. I still remember because I thought these guys these clowns are gonna lose. I was sitting there uh, t- to Dave's point, j- drinking you know some not great beer at the age of what was I at the time twenty seven or so. Mm-hmm. And I thought this franchise is just in trouble. That's what we all thought at the time. Yeah.
1: Now it's, we've come a long way since then, gentlemen, and we are better off for it. Although I do miss Joe sensors. That was a fun place to watch football game. Um, uh, Gentlemen, we're, we're approaching an hour here. Um, Any final thoughts, uh, memories of the game before we kind of wrap things up?
0: I think we've hit it. Mm -hmm. I'm just going through my notes here. I, I think we basically have have hit it. O- although there is a Randall Cunningham quote, I want to read because I found a game story from this game, and at the time it was very nice. A year after it became almost a sad quote, though. Cunningham said, "Because keep in mind, as we discussed, he had been out of football in '96, came back to play for the Vikings in '97." Cunningham's quote post game after the Giants' win was. God didn't bring me back to leave me up short, you know, because they had won. Now, they went and got destroyed by San Fran the next week, but at the time, not, not a huge surprise. But the fact was, unfortunately, when the Falcons game came, that changed. And the remarkable thing, too, is by 99, when Cunningham got pulled in favor of Jeff George at halftime in Detroit, it was basically Cunningham saying, I can't. Pull me out of here. Like, he basically told Green, I can't play anymore. Pull me out. Like, in that time, in that three-year time span, basically, we went from this, oh, my God, he's back, and now he's playing great, 98, 15 and what, one, and five or six games into 99, he basically said, put Jeff Georgia." A remarkable story, Randall Cunningham was.
2: And he was up there in age, too.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. He was in his late thirties. But yeah, but his story was like that that arc here was mm-hmm. was such a was such an interesting period because man, he got hot, he got good, it was incredible. And then like Brad would play, and then Brad wouldn't play. But but the uh but the trade then that led to Brad being traded to Washington and Dante being drafted here with, with the pick that they got in the first round was all predicated on Randall Cunningham's going to be our quarterback in 99 and probably 2000 possibly. And the Detroit by that Detroit game he was a complete mess. I don't think he ever recovered from the Falcons loss and what what happened in the second half there when it went from being this weird metrodome celebration of this team is going to the Super Bowl to what is happening here, and to me, it always starts with one play, gents. It always starts with Cunningham dropping back late first half, being sacked. Todd Stucy, left tackle, hadn't given up a sack all season. Uh, Cunningham gets sacked, fumbles Chuck Smith, if I'm not mistaken, and after that, that game completely shifted. Completely, I thought. (laughs) Like, it was – it went from being this coronation of, this team's unbelievable and they're going – to the Super Bowl, to being like, oh, getting nervous, right? <laughs> yep. Minnesota sports, Vikings, oh boy, hold on here, hold on tight.
1: And of course, they couldn't. I'll, I'll never forget watching that game when Gary Anderson missed that field goal. You know, I'm a naive eight year old, nine year old kid at that point. And my mom just gets up from the couch and walks upstairs. And my naive little self, I'm like, Mom, where are you going? There's still two minutes left. She looks down at me. And and says just a few words. You'll understand soon, son. And <laughs> here we are. And I, I, I've I never forgotten that moment.
0: Oh, she was a thousand percent right. Like, yeah. good for her. That's a lesson. You learned a lesson that day, which then, of course, you would repeat in 2001 and 1990 or in 2009. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever been in a stadium that went from being that celebratory to being that just crestfallen in my life. And like I've seen crowds go from being up here to down quickly, but I don't think I've ever seen a stadium go that quiet after being that loud in the same day. It was one of the darndest things I've ever seen. Um, Not fun to see, but certainly intriguing. Mm -hmm.
2: God, it was rough. So on a brighter note, you're going to camp tomorrow, Judd. What do you hope
0: Mini to camp. see out there? Mini camp. Um, what do I hope to see? I hope to see the continued installation of an offense that the Vikings, in my opinion, and this is not a bad thing. Okay, this is not a criticism, but I do think that there is a bit of a race against the clock here because they're they're going to practice at this camp. They're going to practice Tuesday, Wednesday. They're going to take Thursday for like team building function. Like, so they're not going to practice. But then keep in mind with the way that the schedule now works in the springtime, they're not going to be back until training camp starts. And I will say this there is, from almost everyone you talk to, an incredible amount of moving parts here. And like, in, I think they've had access to three OTA practices. And in watching those, like, you can see it. Justin Jefferson's being asked to do about eight things, which is not a bad thing, but that's just a lot to absorb. So I guess my I guess what I'm curious about long term here, you guys, is this. How much of this offense in its totality could truly be installed by the Green Bay game? So like I'm, they're, they're going to have lots of it in. But I think that there's going to be just a lot of tweaks and things. And, and just as far as as the learning curve goes. Cause you know, guys are now going to go on vacation. It's not, it's not like they're going to be working with O'Connell or Cousins. So I'm curious about that. And my biggest question offensively, you guys comes down to one very simple thing. Why do the Vikings think that Garrett Bradbury deserves to start? Like, if you look at all the other places, they've made some moves. Um, I think the tackles are good now. I really do. Uh, At right guard, they've at least created a veteran competition. I think Ezra Cleveland at at left guard is fine. I'm not saying he's a Pro Bowl player, but I don't think he's a disaster unless I'm told by uh, a coach or something that it's not working. But the Bradbury thing to me is so intriguing because, I mean, this team is doing everything it can and it should to make Kirk Cousins comfortable and successful, right? So I guess my question is they see something. Uh, and I don't know if it's cousins delivering the ball quicker I don't know if it's technique from Garrett or what and I'm not trying to dump on the kid but what I am saying is he's gotten a lot of shots pass protection wise to show his wares and it's the one position that I'm like if it doesn't work what happens does Chris Reed shift there is Chris Reed good there So that's the one thing that surprises me, that they haven't been a little bit more aggressive in creating at least a pseudo-competition, because right now, as this two-day camp starts, Garrett Bradbury is this team's 1A and basically 1B center, and it hasn't exactly worked out great for, what, the first three years of his career here. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, And what's really fascinating, Judd, is this regime doesn't have any investment in Garrett Bradbury. Where, if Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer decided to try him out for a fourth year, they invested a first round pick in him. This regime has nothing invested in Garrett Bradbury. They really have nothing invested in any of these players before this draft class. And potentially, like you could argue, Kirk Cousins because of Kevin O'Connell's experience with them. But it's, it's a clean slate. And mm-hmm. it is astounding that they just decided to roll with it. But uh, Brian Allen did make an incredible leap last year for the los angeles rams at the center position and his issues were not dissimilar to garrett bradbury's so the argument's got to be that if you can get that out of allen in year four then you can get the same out of bradbury in year four
2: and i hope they're right (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) i hope they're right but what o'connell said earlier he loves the way garrett goes up to the line and can call the defense and set the line and, mm-hmm. and even in his offense, just like it was last year, he's the one doing it. It's not going to be Kirk. So
0: Yeah, yeah. I just don't – pass protection-wise, um, I'm curious how they're going to get him help at times. That, that's my thing because I, I think he's a smart kid. I don't think he's a dumb kid at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that position, we've seen a lot of good players for the Vikings at that spot. And that's a tough spot. It takes smarts, but it also takes a mean ombre, right? Like you got to be mean yeah. and you got to be, um, in, in fact, the, the guy that, that was hurt and didn't play, I believe in this game, Jeff Christie, mm-hmm. Jeff Christie was not a big player, but he was no. tough and he was mean and he would, pardon my French, kick your ass and he didn't care who you were. Um, I don't know that Bradbury has that strength or that wiring, if that makes sense. So that's my question.
1: It's going to be a fascinating one to watch. And as we kind of transition to the end of the show here, Judd, but we are obviously big fans of what you guys do at Purple Daily and the backing and Judd program and just your honesty about the product. And I, I'm just curious what you guys have planned here moving forward because we know that uh, the fan base that we're able to draw for this show they share our sentiment in really being a fan of your work.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, we, we are going to, to do throughout the rest of this week camp observations from the two days. There's still stuff to break down. And then probably like you, we're going to get into some uh, 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 um, flashbacks to old games. We're going to uh, get into lists that you know require us to rank things. Uh, We're going to buy our time until camp starts. And then once camp starts, I mean this sincerely, this is as excited. And I'm not saying because I expect it to be ultra successful, but this is as intrigued and excited as I've been for a season in a long time, because the Vikings are really saying our coaching stunk, like our coaching was really bad. And we think that we could take a lot of the players that they took and failed with, and we could be successful. And that starts with Kirk. Um, and I am not just to, to, be clear here, I am not eager to see anybody fail, but I am eager to see what's going to be done differently and how much of this really falls back on Zimmer and Clint Kubiak. Cause it was rough and my expectations going into 2021 were fairly high. Um, I really thought that, that because of, of, Your point, Tyler, they'd strip this down somewhat because they certainly had that luxury if they wanted it. They didn't take it. They clearly are invested in saying, we can win and compete for a division title. Is that true? I have no clue. But I'm very eager to see if that's true. So I think that there's going to be a lot of good talking points here. And it's going to be a lot of fun to see what direction a franchise that by the last two years, I think it's safe to say felt stale. It's going to be, yeah. this is going to be different. O'Connell and Quasi are going to, if nothing else, bring a very different feeling to a franchise that I would say spent 2021 in a bad mood. That's a good way mm-hmm. to put it. A lot That's of people are going to bad mood.
1: It. Oh, yeah. Know, uh, as, especially us fans having to deal with mediocrity consistently for the past few years. And yeah, um, the coach. But yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll get into that more as the offseason progresses. But Dave, um, we're finally past Memorial Weekend. I was finally able to take a much-needed break. Um, what do we have lined up for this week for the for the network?
2: We have, uh, on Wednesday, Vikings happy hour. Matt and Ryan will be back. I don't know what they planned, but they said they're going to be back. And then, of course, on Saturday, you get two old bloggers with myself and Darren Campbell as we break down whatever happens this week. And I'm sure we'll be watching from afar seeing the reports coming out of uh egan as to what happens and we'll find topics there
1: hey i gotta say that uh if you haven't checked out two old bloggers fantastic stuff dave i really enjoyed the episode on saturday it was awesome stuff um Thanks. in in the meantime judd thank you once again for coming on and talking Thanks, about what one of my favorite games in vikings history Next week, we're going to continue the series of uh, identifying and exploring um, underappreciated moments, performances, and games in Vikings history. We're going to talk about Percy Harvin's 2012 MVP campaign before it got hindered by a hamstring injury and all the drama that surrounded it. So make sure you click like, subscribe, ring the bell, help us out, help get the word out about how much fun we are having here on climbing the pocket with people like Judd Zalgad. And let's let's spread the love. Uh, we love beer, and it helps us cope with the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> in, in the meantime, from Judd and Dave, um, I am Tyler Fornis, And uh, the one thing we say every day when we turn your Monday purple, Skull Vikings. Skull Vikings.
2: Thanks for watching. Like, subscribe, and ring the bell, and rate us on your favorite aggregator. And a special shout out goes to our partners, the Daily Norseman, where the best Vikings content can be found. And to Lake Monster Brewing, home of the best beer in Minnesota. Skull, everybody.